Well, we're, uh, we're in our, our discussion on marriage ethics, and remember the list of questions we started off with last week, all of which made you go, hmm, interesting, not sure what to do with that. We then uh, were looking at uh, an abbreviated article from Nelson's Illustrated Manners and Customs of the Bible, and I'm going to continue our conversation on that tonight, and then we're going to go through several scriptural texts that relate to divorce and remarriage laws under both covenants in uh, both Old and New Testament. And then I hope at the end we can get back to at least a couple of the questions we raised at the beginning of last week's class and just give you an opportunity then to process those a little bit and to uh, maybe arrive at some tentative conclusions. So... I did not have a pen with me last week, but I think we left off, I usually write, write ended here in the margins, but I think we left off under the section titled Violations of Marriage. Is that correct? Okay. Oh, did we get right through to Jesus' teachings? Okay, so we did Mosaic Law? Okay, Jesus' teachings. Okay. Thank you, Jack, for being sharp and well-prepared and all right, so we'll skip forward to that section then. So Jesus' teachings. A few background comments before I go to the article. Um, it's, it's helpful for us to understand a little bit about the Palestine within which Jesus ministered. Oftentimes when we read the Bible, we read it sort of flat. We almost assume it all happened at once. I mean, we know it didn't, but we read it as if the Jerusalem of, you know, 1000 BC is the same as the one in Jesus' day, and it's the same as the one today, and I mean, I think people even have the notion, I mean, the Adams have been to Jerusalem, maybe others of you, they have the notion that when they go to Jerusalem, they're going to be seeing everything Jesus saw. <laughs> like 2,000 years has gone by, a whole lot of architectures has gone up and got, come down, Right? No. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're not only standing about 30 to 40 feet above where he was standing, but um, just been it's massive like, changes, right? Yeah. You got to go down little tunnels to try to see at least the ground that Jesus was on. But the same goes with um, the general ethos of Palestine. The, the ethos of Palestine was different than uh, when... Abraham was wandering around it, certainly when David was ruling it, and so forth. The unique thing about Jesus' day, which should encourage you as Canadians, is unlike the day of days of David or Solomon, or even during the exiles, where it was more or less mono-ethnic, mono-religious. I mean, yeah, there was a few foreigners living among them, but there's a lot of unity. Jesus Palestine was very much like modern day Canada. Heavily, heavily, heavily multi-ethnic, pluralistic. People from all over the world wandering through because the Jews had no control over the country. It was ruled by Rome and as a Roman province, it was called Palestinia or Philistinia, depending how you want to pronounce it. There were people from all walks of life there. And even among the Jews, there were Jews that maybe had like historical connections to ancient Judaism, much like maybe a, a really conservative 
uh, Christian might today who has a family lineage of Christianity. And there were people that were like on the other end, like liberal uh, Jewish believers and everything in between. And then, of course, there were Christians that were soon to be on the scene. So Jesus, in Jesus' day then, much of Jesus' teaching is an attempt to clarify confusion. It's not just providing an apologetic against the Pharisees. It's trying to clarify the confusion against the average Jew who was largely untaught about Scripture. And all of the other folks that had sort of intermarried in or come into the country that would have been among the the mix of Jesus' audiences. So this is very important to understand. Jesus was living in a Palestine, a Judea, that was, I mean, I I don't want to state this from a, uh, a statistical perspective, but just from an anecdotal perspective, was as diverse as Windsor, Ontario in terms of religious and ethnic background. And so it's not like Jesus is out on the streets and he's necessarily talking to people who get it. Uh, These are people that are largely confused and those that have an interest in spiritual things are just wandering around after the local Pharisee and taking his word for it, right? Or the local Sadducee or the local Zealot or the local Essene or whoever happened to be the most popular orator at the time. So in Jesus' day then, getting into our our article, there was much confusion on the issue of the grounds of divorce. Very confusing for people. The rabbis could not agree on an interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1, which speaks of uncleanness. What does that mean? What are the circumstances that would allow a person to be considered unclean. So if you go take your Bible and go to Deuteronomy 24. And uh, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of the house and on and on and on and on and on, right? The the, the sticky point was what what is the indecency or in other translations, the the uncleanness? What is that? I mean, for one guy, it might be, uh, you know, she she burnt the toast. Um, For another guy, it might be she's a runaround. So we're talking about two very different ends of the spectrum there, of course, but hypothetically, a person could concoct any number of reasons to say, my wife's unclean, so here's your certificate of divorce. And the rabbis then debated, like, what what is uncleanness, right? So broadly speaking, there were two opinions. There were those that followed uh, Rabbi Shammai. We have some markers here. So we got Rabbi Shammai on one hand. And the second fellow is Rabbi Hillel. So these were historical rabbis who uh, divided 
the teachers of the day into two camps. So Rabbi Shammai felt that the only justifiable interpretation was adultery. Uh, those that followed Hillel, well, they could put adultery in the mix. But, and I'm not trying to be humorous here, poor cooking. Okay, I won't ask how that plays out in your relationship, gentlemen. But poor cooking. And potentially any, anything in between. So you see, one guy's, we'll say, liberal or licentious. The other guy's very conservative, and you got different perspectives then on what's acceptable. Now the Gospels record four statements by Jesus regarding divorce. In two of these, Jesus allows divorce in the case of adultery. So Jesus weighs in twice on these. In Matthew 5:32, Jesus comments on the position of both the woman and her new husband. So this is uh, this is the text, Matthew uh, uh, 5:32. Whoever shall put away his wife, saving for a cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whoever shall marry her, uh, that is divorce, commits adultery. And in another statement, Jesus spoke of the position of a man who divorces his wife. Whoever uh, shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. So we're not going to unpack all these right now, okay? But you'll see that Jesus ties a, the word adultery to two divorce texts in the New Testament. These two statements do seem to allow Divorce on the basis of unfaithfulness, marital unfaithfulness, that is, not poor cooking unfaithfulness. Um, however, in two other contexts, Jesus appears to give no sanction at all to divorce. So in Matthew, you can go to Mark 10. Um, verse 11 and 12. By the way, this is more like biblical theology than it is ethics right now. But the reason why we're doing this is so that we can go back and answer the ethical questions. So we have the basic divorce texts down. So Mark 10, verse 11 and 12. Notice he says, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Period. So they're truncated. Like if you just had... If you just had that verse, we would all have to agree that in every case, in all circumstances, you divorce, you remarry, that's adultery. Bottom line. And then in Luke uh, 16, 18. So let's go to Luke 16, 18. And you should be somewhat familiar with these because when you're having conversations with people, they may bring these passages up, right? So Luke 16, 18. Whoever, oh, 
sorry, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So again, it's very similar to the, to the Mark verse. So just hold on to those a little bit. And ask yourself this question. How do Jesus' statements allowing divorce for infidelity, in the other two passages, harmonize with statements that seem to forbid it entirely? Well, the first clue is found in Jesus' conversations with the Pharisees. So go back to uh, Mark 10, if you'd like, and Luke 16. And you'll notice that in it, he is making the point that divorce is contrary to God's plan for, for marriage. So even though the law of Moses allows for divorce, it's only a provisional and reluctant allowance. So let's just think about this for a moment. There's more than one way to allow somebody to do something. I mean, we could probably draw many examples from parenting. Where if a child says, my dad or my mom allows me to do dot, dot, dot. That doesn't necessarily mean that when mom or dad allowed it, it's like, Go do it. We love it. We think it's great. We advocate for you. We want you to do it. We're allowing you to do it. There could be like, man, I really wish you wouldn't. I think it's a bad idea. I think it's unwise. I wish you'd reconsider. But based upon several other circumstances, we're going to allow you to do it or allow you to make the choice. That's the same word, allow, allow, but it's a very different context. And in the divorce texts, then, that Jesus would have been familiar with from the Hebrew Bible, it's more of the second kind. That's how you can reconcile the fact that there's, there's allowance for divorce under the Old Covenant, but God hates it, he says at the same time. So it's never a, way to go, you married her, I'm glad it's going well, and now it's not going well, please divorce her, I want you to divorce her, you really should think about divorcing it. It's not, it's not like that. So we just need to take that into consideration. So therefore, even though the law allows for it, um, it's provisional and reluctant, as they've written here. Jesus puts teeth into the law by declaring that even if a divorced couple had not been uh, sexually unfaithful to each other, they could commit adultery in God's sight if they married other partners. See? So note then that Jesus' statements belong in conversations with Pharisees about the Mosaic law, which they believe sanctioned divorce on grounds other than adultery because of the influence of guys like this in the right column. So Jesus' main point was that divorce should never be taken um, lightly. And so the reason why he's narrow in the two latter texts that we looked at, Luke 16 and Mark 10, is that is not his purpose. It, it is not his purpose to, abro to approach the broader subject of adultery. Now, in the other two passages, so we, we can go to the, back to Matthew 19, and um, 
Matthew 5. One thing to note is that when you are doing any studies in the Synoptic Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That excludes John. John's written a little differently. But the Synoptics, the ones that are synonymous, are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Let's say you're teaching a lesson or you're preaching a sermon on something Jesus said. It's always a good idea to see what he, what's recorded in the other Gospels as well, if that event happens to be recorded. And what you'll find is that Matthew, for example, tends to be a little longer. He gives you more info. Luke's shorter, more truncated. It's also a shorter book, 28 chapters, I think 16 chapters. Now, the reason for that is different purposes. But, but just keep this in mind. Sometimes if you read one or the other, you might get a little more information than you found in the one you started in. That doesn't mean that it's incorrect. Less information doesn't make it incorrect. It's just less information because he's giving it to you maybe for another reason. So if you go to uh, Matthew 5, and then we'll be ready to go to Matthew uh, 19 as well. There's just more information here. So Matthew 5.32. Now before we get into Matthew 5.32, just let your eyes kind of wander back up a few verses. What, what else is Jesus talking about here? Okay, divorce, what else? Adultery, other ethical issues like anger, which obviously probably has some tie-in to uh, divorce as well. But you could go right back up to verse 27, which in my, my study Bible has like little headings. This one is, the heading here is lust, and then in verse 31, the heading is divorce. But look at the lust one. These headings are added, right? So sometimes the headings distract you from looking at the whole unit. But if you look at it, there's also a comment about divorce in there. You have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. So he's quoting something. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So is Jesus then saying, I don't agree with what was previously written? He's adding to it. He's not disagreeing with He's adding to it. And probably the reason why he's adding to it is because some knucklehead along the way felt that he could commit adultery of the mind and God didn't mind that. It was just the physical act that God got, got upset. So he doesn't detract from it, but he's like, okay, you know, maybe you misunderstood. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add, I'm going to give you a little bit more to think about here. And then he has this... Uh, um, idea here of if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it's better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, if you were to ask me, do you take that literally or figuratively, look at how many eyes and hands I have. But there are some historically that have taken that literally. I think um, might have been Origen. Origen. From what I understand, he castrated himself. I don't know if he gouged it in the eyes or not. Glenn's our resident historian. But um, from what we understand, he castrated himself because he, he was overcome by lust and wanted to deal with it once and for all. I, I'm not sure that would work, by the way, because... Um, 
lust is not does not flow merely from the sexual glands. It's also psychosocial. We can lust for a relationship of intimacy with someone, irregardless of the sexual, that indicates our lack of willingness or lack of desire to find that lasting intimacy in the relationship that's supposed to provide it. Uh, that's a, probably a run-on sentence, I suppose. But the idea is, is that I'm not convinced that lust is necessarily as hormonal as we often make it out to be. I think it has much to do with our human brokenness, our desire for intimacy, the notion that we marry and assume that in that relationship all of our needs will forever and eternally and perpetually be met in all of their fullness. And they are not. No human being can fully and completely make us whole. And when a person consciously or subconsciously realizes that, and there's offers from others, fake though they may be, to meet those needs, it's easy for a person to start an, intimate, an inappropriate intimate relationship with another, which obviously has a sexual dimension to it. We understand that as adults. But uh, the point being is just removing the hormones doesn't necessarily fix the problem. I mean, it would certainly, certainly it is true that Origen would not have been able to have sexual, have sexual intercourse, but that doesn't fix his internal brokenness, does it? the motives behind it doesn't fix it but i think what jesus is saying here is this is this is really really important it's better to lose something than to lose your whole self now from there he then goes in and he says it was also said now if you didn't read the previous you're not going to know what the also is in reference to the also was the divorce text right the adultery text Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So Jesus doesn't distract, detract from this. But I say to you, so he's, notice he's adding to, just like he did previous. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except, he's actually providing a greater limitation on the Old Testament text than the Old Testament text uh, gave us. What Jesus is doing here is, you could say, I know we don't necessarily like the word law, he's adding greater law, greater specificity. We always have this notion that the New Testament loosens everything up. No, but New Testament actually tightens some things up. And this is an example of that. Whoever divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, from sort of the openness side of things, it is true that Jesus is opening the door in a certain sense to say that if there is sexual immorality, that other person in remarrying is not committing adultery. But that's actually not the purpose of the text. The purpose of a text is not to open the door. The purpose of the text is to take a door that is far too open and kind of close it up a little bit. So the exception clause is a reaction to the notion of men like Halal that said anything goes. He said, no, no, except for fornication, 
except for sexual immorality. It's out of bounds, is what Jesus is saying. So we need to be careful when we preach this text so we don't preach it almost like good news. Hey, you get to divorce your spouse. Jesus said you could. I mean, there's implications that yet that is true. But in the context, Jesus is trying to close a door of abuse. He's saying, you know, you can't just run off from your spouse because you know, they, they emotionally didn't connect with you. Or you weren't compatible. I'll just use some modern language. Or you didn't have chemistry. <laughs> or all these other notions that we have. Or the best of all, and the stupidest of all, we married too young. <laughs> what does that mean? It means nothing. So all of these notions that we have, Jesus is challenging those. You know, it's except for sexual immorality. So this is what Jesus does. Halal, you're wrong. Shammai, you're right. He sides with him. He, 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 closes the, he doesn't close the door, but he lets it swing partially shut. Now, a man then divorcing his wife, uh, of course, okay, if, if, a, if a man, uh, let's just go back to this text momentarily. Everyone who divorces his wife, except in the grounds of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So um, the reason why the uh, man divorcing his wife and her marrying another is an adulterous act is... Um, uh, we, we just need to take note of the fact that it's within the context of a marriage. Okay, within a marriage, let me say that again, within a marriage that adultery is taking place. So we usually think of marriage and adultery like this. They're mutually exclusive categories. They're... They, it would be oxymoronic for someone to be a married adulterer unless they're with someone else. But Jesus actually takes adultery and applies it to, in this case, a married couple. So this goes back to begin to help us to unpack one of the questions we asked last week. Just because a person has a marriage license or whatever the, your culture provides, does that mean that they are then no longer committing adultery? Well, it's possible to never have committed adultery until you remarried. So think about that. It's possible for a person to be rightly married, divorce, not sleep with anyone else, get remarried, and on their wedding night is their first act of adultery. Just think about that. This is not how we normally consider um, other marriages. Um, again, we usually separate it out. Oh, you know, my, my, uh, my uncle runs off on his wife. It's wrong of him to do that. But at least he married his girlfriend, right? That's what we say. At least he married her. Well, in marrying her, he may now be an adulterer, whereas he wasn't necessarily before. He might have been guilty of other sins, but he wasn't necessarily before that. 
So we'll come back to this. We'll talk about like the forgiveness issues and whatnot, because there's probably a few divorced people in this room, I'm guessing. So we need to come back to this, or you're going to go home pretty upset. But um, I just want you to sort of read the text and just sort of let it let it uh, let it sit with you for a little bit. Now. Um, let's then go to Hosea chapter 3. <coughs> now, we know that Hosea, Hosea is an extended metaphor of God's relationship with his people but it is it hinges on Hosea's relationship with his wife Gomer. And we know that right from the opening verses. But notice chapter 3 verse 1. What does it say? What does he say to Hosea? Go. So he has to be. He has to take the first step. Who's who's taking the first step? The victim, right? Don't ever tell people that have had a marital breakdown that it's both parties that are necessarily at fault. Try try telling Hosea that. Okay, it can be. We understand that. But just because someone's divorced doesn't mean they are at fault, folks. It can be entirely on the whim and will, will and wishes of the other to abandon the relationship for their own carnal purposes. Okay. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. Now, that's polite because really it's men. She was a harlot. You're not a harlot when you sleep with one person. And is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now, in this case, there's also reconciliation involved. So, um, this is this is powerful. Uh, while there is the occasion, the opportunity, the permission to vacate the relationship, if there's sexual immorality, there is also consideration given for reconciliation. It's not necessarily, I'm going to use two words, it's not necessarily mandated, but it is modeled. So just think about that. It's not necessarily mandated for, for, for all folks, but it is modeled by the image of Hosea in Hosea 3. And we could go to several texts too to think about um, the 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 idea that I brought up on Sunday, but I'll apply it a little differently. That of that of God's forgiveness directed towards His people. In that, several times, especially under the old covenant, adultery imagery is borrowed to help us to understand the nature of our rebellion against our covenant God. And God plays the role of the fool going to you, wooing you back, calling you back, 
even though you're, you've made a fool of him and the covenant relationship that he's established by being like the gomer, the adulterous wife who's made a mess of your life and everybody knows it, right? Keep in mind too with, with Hosea, we're not talking about some metrosexual guy here who's in an egalitarian relationship. We're talking about a man from a patriarchal culture in ancient times who's the man of his house, who doesn't run like children do, who walks with dignity and respect, having to go to a public place, a market, and raise his hand and let everybody know he's the fool now, publicly buying his wife back. That's called shame. That's called embarrassment. You need to enter into the culture. And so this is a pretty uh, moving account, of course, of this man's actions, and it does typify God's relationship with us. So we just need to, to take that into consideration. Now I want to look at um, a, uh, another text, and um, that is uh, 1 Corinthians 7. So this is important, too, to kind of go back in the text and look at the broader context. In the Corinthian church, you have people coming from a broad array of backgrounds to become part of the church. Notably, broad strokes of Jews and Gentiles. So in light of the fact that different people are coming to the church with different backgrounds, different, different um, ethnicities, notice way back in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 7, he says, uh, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which the Lord has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So this is not just the Corinthian church. This is for everyone. Now listen to this. Was anyone at the time of his call, what's the call? His salvation. Already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Apparently there was some attempt to do that. I don't know what that would have looked like, but apparently there was some attempt. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Now this would have been huge under the old covenant, but not under the new. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And then he summarizes. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Then he goes on to talk about status relationships. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called to the Lord as a bondservant is a free, freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition, which I think is intended to say, if I've missed anything here, in whatever condition he was called, let there let him remain with God. In other words, there's, there's flexibility in the church. You, you come in with different backgrounds, different notions. Uh, perhaps 
different marital statuses, different stories, stuff that's irreversible. I mean, if you're saved as an adult, you probably bring some irreversible garbage into your Christianity. And some of it's not reversible. So if you're sitting here and you're like, man, I, I violated like all of this before I was saved. Move on. You can't reverse it. But from here forward, you're responsible for your behavior. And then from there, he immediately goes into married and unmarried. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. This is a wisdom issue. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Now, if you don't, if you cut into this text right here, but you've not read the previous, then you've already missed the remain as you are, remain as you are, remain as you are language. It's all integrated. So this is not just about remaining single or remaining marriage. This also has implications for your social status, whether you're circumcised or not. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you from that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as if they had none, and those who mourn as though they are not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they are not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. So don't let your social status, your history, your past define you. I think that that's how this text can be accurately preached. Do not allow whatever is part of your pre-Christian experience to define you. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But let the married man be anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided, and so forth and so on. Now, um, I want you then to go back up in the text to the, the verses that led into this conversation. And uh, we're going to look at verse 15 together. But... If the unbelieving spouse separates, let it be so. In such case, a brother or sister is not enslaved. He's called to peace. For how do you know wife whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife? Again, everything in this passage sounds very much alike. Life's not always going to be great. Your history's not always going to be great. Your past is not always going to be great. Even when you come to Christ, if you come to, come to Christ and your spouse is not a believer and they say, I don't want to be part of it, and now you're not married, don't let it bring anxiety into your life. You can't fix certain things. You can't un unscramble certain eggs. So I think this is helpful on two, two trajectories. Number one, it, it helps us as a church know how to counsel people and speak into people's lives who come to Christ with a whole lot of guilt and a whole lot of baggage and a whole lot of brokenness from the past and wonder the degree to which they're responsible for or under God's judgment for or um, condemned for or disqualified because of their past. And divorce is not the only one. There's a lot of other things in the list. Um, secondly, 
if a person does become a believer and is abandoned by their spouse, again, the text is not there just to jump to, oh, you're abandoned, you can go remarry. That's not really the express purpose of the text. The express purpose of the text is, and, and I don't think, I don't mean this in a, in a um, uh, insensitive way, like don't let it rock your boat, your boat being your walk with Christ. Bad things are going to happen. Now, it does, it would appear by implication that if a Christian is abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, and they're not bound, the text says to that, it would appear by implication that one might say, yeah, there's room to remarry. And I would feel comfortable saying that to someone. But uh, we shouldn't just go there immediately because that's not the, the, the central purpose of the biblical text. The central purpose of the biblical text is about growing in your walk with Christ, finding joy in your walk with Christ, even when your past, your history, and your present may not be particularly ideal. See? So I think this is a helpful text too when it comes to how we uh, deal with um, unbelievers who may come into our church with, with this kind of baggage or any other kinds of baggage that they may have brought with them. Now, I'm just curious if you have any questions or comments or further insights on the texts that we've looked at so far tonight. There are others to be looked at. I have several more, about 20. But uh, any comments or additions you'd like to add to our the text we've looked at tonight? This is new for some. Yeah, Josie. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Well, you said sometimes, so that can mean anything from 5% of the time to 95. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's largely in, in light of the fact that uh, in, in that culture, only a man could actually write the certificate of divorce. Keep in mind that 100 years ago, nobody would have voted for any of the people that were elected last night in the country of Canada who was a woman. Okay, so 100 years ago, women, the women's suffrage movement was going on. That's a relatively recent history. Women could not vote. The man represented the home. He voted. So that's more modern history. Now, you go back like 2,000 years, no woman's writing the certificate of divorce and calling it quits in the marriage. That's the man. So... If the text then is originally written into that culture, it would be ludicrous to project ahead 2,000 years when times have changed and add language for vice versa. So we just have to add that because in our context, it can be either person initiating it. But because only the man could legitimately initiate the divorce legally, then the text is framed that way in light of those cultural connotations. Glenn?
In Palestine? Yes. Okay. Like almost exceptions to the rule or something? Could be, yeah. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah, so th this text certainly, Josie, we don't want to read it and say, you know, oh, this, is, this makes the women look the, the bad, bad, I was going to say bad guy, but bad girl. Um, and the guy is always sort of the victim. It, no, it's, it's like, um, you know, there's, there's passage in the Bible where a, a writer might say, hey, brothers. And maybe he's talking to two guys and they're noted, so it's brothers. Other times, it's just the group of disciples that are there. He may say brothers and sisters, but it's probably meant to be inclusive of both. Right? So it's just, it's just a matter of the way it's framed. We shouldn't make too much of, um, of uh, the issue of you know, who has the right to initiate it in our, our context. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would say this, Josie. I'm not. A, I'm not 100% sure what you mean by that. But when when you first started speaking, I thought this is the way you're gonna you were gonna go. So I'm just gonna take the liberty to put words in your mouth, um, and then agree and then agree with you. Um, and that would be that. And and again, I I'm just speaking in generalities here. I don't want I don't want to come across in a way they don't intend to come across, but. In, in the dynamics of a, of a proper marriage, the husband leads out spiritually and whatnot, and there's, there's headship in a marriage. And I, I understand, I read Genesis 3-2, it gets messed up, and I understand competency issues, and you, know, you don't have to have any of those conversations with me because I know about all that. But in the biblical idea that the husband leads out spiritually and initiates and whatnot. Um, so that being the... the, the, the the example in scripture, it's, it's almost counterintuitive then for a woman to call for the divorce. It, 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 would, it would, in a sense, especially in that context, that culture, it makes more sense for the man to call for the divorce because that's almost, that's, that's an act of initiation. He's initiating, it's not, he's not initiating the right thing, he's initiating something that's wrong. But he's, he's initiating the relationship. And the, the notion that a woman would be as apt to say, no, I want to call it quit, that's, that's more of a modern notion. That's more of a modern notion due to the fact that we've sort of flattened things out. Now, I think some things needed to be flattened out. But unfortunately, now we have, um, you know, the sole distinguisher uh, up, up to our, up to like my generation, for instance, differentiating a man and a woman is biology, and nothing else uh, distinguishes men from women, and now that's being challenged. Now biology itself is being altered. 
And so we, we see this, this blending of the genders, this flattening of maleness and femaleness right down to something as fundamental and rudimentary as biology itself with sex changes and all that kind of stuff and transgender. So it started with the roles um, and just kind of worked its way down. And there are many out there that are flying uh, flags pretty high championing that. Um, even from a non-Christian perspective, I think we've lost some beauty there. We've lost mystery. We've lost diversity. We've lost, you know, it's interesting, our culture is, we like to use words like multicultural. We celebrate the differences. No, you don't. You're actually reducing it in this area. <laughs> Trying to make everybody alike. You're robbing maleness and femaleness of the mystery. I, I, I'll just make a couple more comments. I think this is important stuff. And, and this is, it will lead up to the comment that I'm about to make. And that is that um, the, the homosexual texts of Scripture, of course, um, uh, you know, are to be read and understood. But I think it's okay for us to consider on a deeper level, what is it that God might be protecting us from? And um, I have a lot of guy friends and with few exceptions, I can figure a guy out in a couple hours. You know, you hang out a little bit. You more guys, from my perspective, are very simple creatures, right? In a positive way, they're not simpletons. They're highly intelligent. But guys are kind of simple. Like we, it doesn't. I have very few relationships with other guys that are complex. You sort of know what a guy likes, what he doesn't like. You can openly talk. You can tease him about what he looks like or what he does. You can goof around. Generally, he doesn't get too upset unless you step on the respect button. And um, it's it, it's fun because it's it's uncomplicated. That's why I like hanging around with other guys. But there's something that... Um, my relationship with women, especially my wife, but my sisters in Christ, my daughters, my sisters, my mom, that brings something different and there's mystery. Can't figure you out. You know? <laughs> and, and yet there's some beauty in that. There's exploration in that. There's a pioneering dimension to that relationship. And we may not be conscious of this, but I want to kind of make you conscious of it, that one of the reasons why I think men um, in marriage are attracted to their wives is the mystery and at the 10th anniversary, like, I still haven't figured her out. And the 20th, I still haven't figured her out. But in a good way, not a bad way. In a good way. There's mystery there, right? We're different, and we're attracted to the otherness. And somehow, in the unity we find with one another, there's a greater wholeness than there is by ourselves. And that's the beauty of the marital dynamic. Marred by sin, not, not always the ideal because of sin and all that. But that's, that's beauty and... Unfortunately, I think it's a ploy of the devil to rob our culture and our humanity of that mystery and that exploration and the pioneering nature of that relationship. Right? Likewise, I can't speak for women, but you probably understand each other in a greater way 
on certain levels than guys. You're like, why, why are they so dense? Like, why are they so, why don't they get it, you know? And, and there can be frustration, but there can also be, uh, and I'm not sure I really ever, I don't even think I've ever asked my wife this, but there's probably a sense of mystery for you too, that he's different than me. And, and I want to kind of understand and know and enter into that kind of a relationship. So this is where, uh, um, you know, we go right back to Genesis 2. Adam's alone. God makes a helpmeet for him. The two are one. They're unashamed. And there's wholeness there. And the wholeness comes from the otherness of the other. But then sin comes in and drives a wedge between them. And through Christ, we're trying to reconcile all things, including the institution of marriage, right? So, so um, this is why... This is why we fight for marriage and we, we, we fight for um, uh, a certain notion of marriage, not just because, oh, we're grossed out with the alternatives. Um, or we use the argument, well, it's not biologically right. Men don't fit with men and women don't fit with women in the sexual union. Well, that might be true, but those are pretty shallow arguments to try to convince someone of. But if the Christian church can do a good job in um, showing people the mystery and the dynamic of marriage, I wonder if there might be a, a greater interest by the world to return to this institution. If we speak of our relationships positively, if we model good marital ethics, a good theology of marriage, you know, man, I, my, our neighbors might just say, you know what? It might be two generations from now. In my generation, we threw that antiquated institution away, but maybe we did lose something. Uh, maybe my Christian neighbors have something that I want my kids to have. You never know, right? History is cyclical. And the sins of one generation are not necessarily the sins of the next. It'll just be different by that point in time. So we need to make sure that we um, understand this kind of stuff so that we can appreciate and make it through marriage better, and by implication, maybe have a better influence on society. If the church just wags its fig finger at men and women that are living together outside of marriage, or homosexual couples, and all we do is wag our finger and um, call, them, call it shameful and call them down, um, we, we're, we're not presenting to them the reason why very well. We're not presenting to them an alternative and you try to tell someone who's in a meaningful relationship with another person, as inappropriate as you might think it is, you need to get out of that. Okay, what's my alternative? I'm a human being. I'm lonely. I want a relationship. Well, you need to come over and be, one, be part of one of these, well, they're, they're, they're boring and they're terrible and they're filled with divorce, but these heterosexual relationships, but this is where you need to be. I mean, we hate them too, but you should come, kind of come over to our side. Well, this doesn't, that's not good marketing, you know? So... Any other comments or thoughts? Yeah. It almost, it almost sounds like the society where when that good divorce is right from us, any reason is similar to the society we've got now. It is. Yeah. Yeah, very much. And without a moral plumb line, <laughs> it's it's whoever's calling the shots at the time, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but now basically there's pretty much no basis for 
one yeah, of there's no fault. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least the Catholic Church, and I will give the Catholic Church a gold star on this one. At least the Catholic Church uh, will only annul a marriage under certain circumstances. And actually, the, the circumstances are generally biblical. Protestant Church, whatever, we don't bother to, do, to address that. Um, so, yeah, Cindy? Right. Yeah, good. Yeah, thanks, Cynthia. It's encouraging. That's good. Yeah, I mean, it, I you know we're, we're we we try to dispel ignorance, and you know I find I don't know about you, but when, I, when I'm just, when I'm reading through the Bible broadly, like we're doing for our challenge right here at the church, um, I think there's a huge benefits to that. But sometimes you read something in a larger setting that you don't really zero in on until you just stop and do something like what we did today. And just focus on that and really mull it over and pull it apart. So both of these approaches are important. And yeah. So hypothetically, if you had a man that was used to it, that got out of the divorce, and for a woman's child, divorce, yeah. and it's happened to everyone that could go to that religion, um, to get married and get it through the divorce process? It would appear that way, yes. And that's that's how I would understand the text. Right? So this is where we now are one step removed from the explicit teachings of the text. But if if we look at it this way, so if a man divorces his wife, and then you have a big comma, and another comma down here, except for um, marital unfaithfulness, and divorces another, he causes her to commit adultery. Or no, and marries another. She marries another, he causes her to commit adultery. So if you take the what we call the exception clause out, the one between the two commas, then it sounds more like Mark 10. But the exception clause then implies if there is marital unfaithfulness and she marries another, then there isn't adultery, right? That's, the, that's how the exception clause functions there. I will say this just to be um, um, you know, accurate and fair to you, even though it, it's going to open up a lot, of, a lot of questions, is that this word here uh, in the Matthew text is um, this word. 
porneia. And this word is broader than our notion of this word. See? So the, the most accurate translation of this word is sexual immorality. So this has caused people to legitimately ask, I caught my uh, wife or husband viewing pornography. This is pornea. I'm done. I mean, Jesus talks about if you look at another lustfully. Um, of course, there's probably very few people that have never ever looked at anyone lustfully. And therefore, one could argue on those lines that um, if you've ever, ever ever had a, uh, even a fleeting lustful thought towards someone who's not your spouse, assuming you're married. I know some of you aren't. Your spouse can divorce you. Right? I mean, one, one could argue that. So, it's like, so basically, like 99.9% .9 of people, except for the really, really pious, um, <laughs> like myself. Um, I mean, pastors don't sin. You, you all know that, right? Um, uh, I misspoke. I stuttered. But, um, yeah, I mean, so then the question is, what is this? Well, I, I would say you, you do have a, 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 there has to be a measure of wisdom here for the simple reason that, that we've created sexual sins that weren't talked about in Scripture. Okay? But you could at least go to, let's say, the Levitical texts, and under this category... You could have adultery. You could have bestiality. I mean, that's not commonly talked about. And it's, it tends to be more limited to agrarian contexts. But bestiality, by the way, is, as odd as it is for us to talk about, must have been a problem way, 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 way back, almost to the beginning of time, because you don't have to get very far in your Bible before it's forbidden. It's very early on that it's actually discussed. So we have adultery, bestiality. I, I guess you could throw in there like rape, whatever else, right? So um, minimally, those things. So in a, those would be in addition to our strict definition of adultery being, oh, a married person goes and has sex with another adult. Well, what if he's molesting a child? Or a person is... Um, committing an act of bestiality or has gone and raped somebody. We don't generally think of rape as adultery. I guess it is for one person, but we just we call it something different. So that would, these would minimally fall into this category, right? And um, I suppose too that even if we had a text in the Bible that said, "Well, you can also divorce your spouse." Or pornography, well, then someone could argue, yeah, but pornography is written. But that's what the word means, right? Porn. Porn. Plus the word uh, graphe or grapho. Um, writing, graph, pornography. All ancient pornography was written. 
Later it became images. We just kept the word. But it was, it was written exotic literature. It's like, what were those old novels they used to sell in the grocery store that women used to get in trouble for buying? Harlequin? Yeah, like it's like Harlequin on steroids, right? Not that I've ever read a Harlequin. I really haven't. Uh, <laughs> but I've heard they're kind of seedy. Okay. Um, really, I haven't. <laughs> but um, that kind of literature that may give rise to fantasy or exotic pleasure, that's the original pornography, and that's out of bounds. So um, the fact that when pornography was first identified, when someone came up with the word pornography, took these two words and pulled them together, the fact that they used porn, pornania as a root word suggests that early on they considered pornography sexual immorality. So something to consider there, right? I, I would say just from a, a biblical perspective, by the way, because I should, I should probably just um, tell you what I think about that. I would say that um, when, like with pornography, because it's a huge issue in our culture, that the wisdom component would probably want to sort through issues of degree. Um, and, and including if someone was caught doing that. Okay, is this like, is this like a one-off, a sporadic issue, you know, a full-blown, full-blown regular habit? Is it something that you do and want to do, do and don't want to do? Is it something you're actively pursuing out, stumble across? Um, is it something you've been honest about up till now? Is it something you have an accountability partner for? Is it something you've brought to the Lord? Is it something, you know, these are the kinds of things that I would be, if a couple was sitting in front of me and, and don't always throw it on the guy. I've, years ago, I had a couple sit down in my office and it was the woman and he brought her to me to say, this is what my wife is doing, right? So, um, I would want to ask those kinds of questions. And if it sort of fell into the category of, okay, this person is viewing pornography or reading pornography, and they're broken before the Lord, and it's an issue for them, or a one-off issue, or an ongoing issue, but they they are seeking to walk away from that. I'm, I'm, I'm very much interested, not just in where a person's at, but where they've come from. Okay, we... We tend to be really good at judging people based upon the moment. You get some guy stumbling in the church that's stumbling in the church that's, you know, an alcoholic, uh, you know, a druggie, a porn addict, and, and we're like, this guy does definitely not qualify as a Christian. But maybe he has come to Christ, and you should have seen him last year. There's a whole lot more that he's dealt with, that you haven't necessarily seen up till this first encounter with him. And by God's grace, he's going to move forward even more, right? But the point is, is we should always be a little bit careful of evaluating people based upon the symptoms now. And we should always ask ourselves a question, I wonder what they were like six months ago, a year ago, 10 years ago. And if there has been upward progress, and this includes someone who is committing any sin, if there's been progress, that's very different than a spouse catching someone for the hundredth time that doesn't care if it's not accountable, that keeps doing it, that couldn't give a rip. Um, that's a very different situation. Okay, and I, so I think we just—that's my opinion. Okay, 
in my opinion. Just like Paul, he gives his opinion at times. It's not I, but the Lord. This is not the Lord, this is me. My opinion is I would want to know where the heart is, where the person's come from, whether there's been progressive sanctification in this area, or whether there's rebellion and hard-heartedness and a lack of desire to change. And if there's rebellion and hard-heartedness and a lack of desire to change, um, I'd probably recommend that the marriage is done um, because there's been a violation that the person is not willing to deal with. On the other hand, um, if there's been repentance and forward movement, then my advice to the victim is consider Hosea. Uh, you know, consider Hosea, consider his reaction to his wife. Yes, it may be shameful for you to take that person back. There may be, um, it may be hard for you to trust that person. Um, but this might be a beautiful opportunity to see grace in action and redemption and gospel lived out. So that, that would be my counsel. Okay? Others would counsel differently, you know, but that, that's sort of the way I would approach it. I would never, however, make the victim feel necessarily obligated to uh, return to the relationship. I'd want to be very careful about that. Um, some Christians do f- do feel that the that the victim is obligated to return if the other repents. I do not believe that. I, I think a broken covenant is a broken covenant, and um, one can forgive and not necessarily choose to renew the covenant. Okay. So, any comments or questions? Yep. Okay, one more time. Oh, the, oh, the first scenario. Okay, so yeah, that was the Deuteronomy twenty-four text, I think. So the, the scenario there is, um, if if there's divorce and then there's remarriage, then the Deuteronomy they shouldn't then divorce the second time and go, man, remarry the first time. That's the idea. Um, if a couple were to divorce and not remarry others and then remarry, I would think that would be a good thing. Yeah. So, okay. Any other comments or questions? So we, um, I noticed Adriana's not here, so I don't think there's prayer sheets here. So we'll just do something a little different. Let's pray for the state of marriage and relationships in our culture and society. And you can do that individually or in small groups or in pairs. We'll just take a few minutes to pray for that. I'll actually just lead us in a prayer and then I'll give us some quiet time. And then uh, and then I'll, after that I'll flick the lights and we can enjoy some snacks together. So let's pray. So Father God, I just come to you tonight and I, like many here, uh, certainly uh, would desire... Uh, to be well married and to see our uh, friends and our family members and our brothers and sisters in the church well married and faithful to covenant. And Father, we want to do all that we can to contribute to those those uh, those dreams and desires. 
We also know, Lord, that we live in a broken world, and um, many times people do come in to our churches who have um, broken pasts, and we pray that you would give us wisdom to help sort through those. Uh, we pray that we would not um, be too quick to uh, declare innocence, but we also pray that we would not be too quick to declare guilt, that we would be okay with um, uh, the notion of being wise and discerning and trying to sort through the rightness and wrongness of past actions. Uh, we also pray, Lord, as um, Cynthia mentioned or alluded to, that um, we would do a good job as best as we can to uh, communicate biblical truths to our children and to hold them accountable to them. Uh, we know, Lord, that uh, uh, many of our children um, have few positive examples and are inundated with uh, inappropriate sexual imagery, um, watch television shows that uh, fail to provide them with a singular positive example of marriage, um, that many of the married folks on TV are, um, are at odds with each other and, or uh, consider marriage a joke, and that the people that are living large and partying and enjoying life tend to be portrayed as singles. Uh, we also know, Lord, that um, video games and other forms of entertainment often uh, uh, portray uh, men and women in inappropriate roles, um, military combat together, these types of things, which just tends to really, in my view, Lord, um, uh, rob our young people of the sense that we are different and special that way. And Father, I'm not sure that our, our church and uh, our time here on earth could possibly reverse all of that damage, but we pray that we would do our part to try to live good examples before our young people and to try to teach them truth and to speak well of the institution of uh, biblical marriage. And we pray that through, uh, through all of that, that you would, as you enter into relationship with our children and young people, would demonstrate to them in a highly experiential way the fact that they can be in a fulfilling covenant. If they're in one with you, they can be in one with one of your other servants. And so, Father, we just, we just lay, lay these burdens at your feet, and we pray that you'll give us wisdom and guidance to help sort through them. In Christ's name, amen. So just take a little bit of time to pray among yourselves, and then I'll, we'll finish up. Okay, um, on your handouts, I've listed several passages for you that relate to uh, divorce and remarriage and uh, polygamy texts. And um, there's several there. You can look those up on your own if you'd like or save those for a future study. Let me just comment on a couple of them that I think are, are worth, um, worth pointing to. Uh, the first would be uh, Matthew 24, verses 37 to 38. This is a very fascinating chapter of the Bible, by the way. <clears throat> it's uh, historically <clears throat> been called the Olivet Discourse. That may be new language for some of you or a little old school for others. 
but uh, Jesus preached it on the Mount of Olives, so this is called the Olivet Discourse, and it's an eschatological passage about uh, the, you know, the end of the end of times. Um, talks about tribulation and enduring to the end to be saved, and um, various cosmological phenomena: the sun dark and the moon not giving its light. Excuse me. Um, the, two, the famous two people in the field passage, which are almost always, which is almost always preached wrongly, um, in that the one that's taken is the the one that's damned, and the one that's left behind is the one that is left for millennial peace. But we often flip it around; we don't read it in its context. Um, and we, we sort of flip it around that the person that's taking is taken to heaven and the person left is left for damnation. It's the other way around here. This is, the, this is a millennial passage leading into the end of all things. So lots of stuff about the end. It, it gives us a bit of a you know, timeline, so to speak. Um, but I want you to focus in on this, in this section on not knowing the time or the hour. Look at verse 37 and 38. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when uh, Noah entered the ark. Um, now, these are sort of outlining some of the conditions then prior to the coming of Christ. Uh, this notion of marriage established way back prior to the time of Noah, it's going to endure. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be around right up to the end of all things. But if you take this and you look at Romans 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, lots of different perversions of marriage will enter in. Women, women with women, men with men, divorce, uh, all sorts of other stuff. At the same time, it's not really all that new. I think sometimes we as Westerners living in the 21st century think, oh, the world's getting worse. Well, I mean, it is, but we're also com comparing that to the last 300 years where morally, at least, it seemed to be getting a little better in the West. But we can't just r look at the last 300 years in North America, with the the people that founded these countries originally were well, the the people that settled this land. Even in the 16 and 1700s, we're talking like Puritans and Congregationalists and you know uh, products of the Reformation. So for a period of time, at least in North America, we we enjoyed maybe a higher than average level of Christian morality. But look outside of that and look back throughout human history, and actually I'd kind of rather be alive now than at some other points of time. Uh, so we need to be careful about that. And even in, um, I, uh, you know, the, the, when the times are desperate, people do desperate things and silly things and untaught things. Um, this is going to be a little surprising. Way back in uh, Isaiah 4, um, this is in reference to to the judgment of God, it says, and seven women will take hold of one man 
in that day saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Just let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Well, there's the women wanting a polygamist relationship. Just another perversion of, uh, of marriage. So um, on one hand, we can say, you know, marriage, it seems, will be around to the end of time. But there's going to be a lot of perversion and mix-up and mess-up in, in that process. And then let's go over to Romans chapter 7. We normally don't think of Romans as a place to go for anything about marriage because it's all about salvation, right? Well, there's actually more to Romans than just the doctrine of justification. Look at the first part of Romans 7. When we read it, it talks about marriage. It's not strictly there to just to jump into a topic of marriage and provide us with a theology of marriage. It's there for other purposes, but we do get a theology of marriage from it. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you've also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to one another, to him who, who has been raised from the dead in order that you may, may bear fruit for God. The marriage text is simply what you would call a sermon illustration. So he's not, he is giving us a theology that factors into our theology of marriage. But it's there as an illustration. He's got the death, life, language, and he applies that then to death to the law. And being freed from the law, just like you're freed from marriage and your spouse dies. So that when you're preaching it or teaching it, you have to sort of preach it in context. However... It does tell us, it gives us insight, nevertheless, into what Paul thought, and that is he seemed to have a, you know, till death do us part theology in his mind. So that's helpful as well. Um, so those are just some, some passages that, um, and again, there's others, some of them we've already, I think most of them we've pretty much all touched on, but uh, those are some passages that um, you need to sort of have in mind. I'll just do one final one, and then we'll, We'll, we'll have a little bit of conversation here. Let's go back to Malachi, often quoted. Most people don't know where it's found, but they like to quote it. Malachi, or if you're Italian, Malachi. <laughs> um, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. Again, looking at the broader setting, God is bemoaning the fact that he has established a covenant with his people that they have broken, and that brings him pain. So the, the context here is covenant. I once had, uh, several years ago, I had an elder in my church say, you shouldn't speak of marriage as a covenant. It's not a covenant. I said, yes, it is a covenant. Passages like this frame it as a covenant. It wasn't Glenn. Um, but he says here, going back to verse 10, yeah, yeah. Have we not all one father? Has not 
one God created us. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of God, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off the tents of, of Jacob, uh, any descendants of the man who does this. And then down further. And the second thing I... The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because um, he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Oh my, you know, the worship service is dull. I don't, I'm not experiencing God. I don't feel God's presence. Uh, how do I really know God exists? I haven't felt his presence for a long time. It's that kind of thing. Like people are bemoaning the fact they don't have an experiential relationship with God. And God tells them why. This is why you're not experiencing me. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Not by vow. A vow is merely one of many ways that one might express a covenant. So in a covenant... Two parties. Here's two parties. In this case, it's a man and a woman. They are separate. They enter into a covenant. That covenant is witnessed by God and man. That's a covenant. Okay, Both of these parties are witnesses to the covenant. The Bible doesn't tell us how the covenant is forged. Okay, one, one, could, one could forge this covenant through a handshake, a kiss, vows, s- signing something, signing a document, um, binding of the hands, uh, giving a sandal, there was business. These are just expressions. That's why from culture to culture these differ. That's okay. If you went to some country far, far away, you may say, oh, I was in a legitimate marriage. They didn't get share their vows. It doesn't matter. These are, just, these are just ways of expressing the covenant. In some way, the covenant needs to be expressed. But it, I find it curious when people say, oh, uh, you shouldn't break your vows. A more accurate language is to say you don't you don't break a covenant. This is like deeper, more profound. This is just an expression of. But this is like the essence of. This is the ontology, the the being stuff. This is the this is what we need to help people to understand that there's there's something that uh, happens between a husband and wife or anybody who enters into covenant. This is a solemn binding agreement. So it doesn't matter how you express it. Vows are fine. I'm not against vows. But it's the breach of covenant. We need to help people to understand. Uh, You might say, what difference does it make? Because I'm concerned that people merely think of marriage as an agreement. That's not the same as a covenant. So if it's an agreement, well, we we no longer agree, so the marriage is over. Or... We made promises, but we're no longer willing to fulfill those promises, so it's over. 
You're not allowed to do that. It's a covenant. It's not about you agreeing or disagreeing or taking vows or not taking vows or signing a license or not signing a license. It's a covenant. And there are conditional covenants in the Bible, but this one is not one of them. This is, sorry, there are temporary covenants in the Bible, but this one is not one of them. This is a till death do you part covenant. Now, because it takes two to tango, you know, you're 50-50, right? We go back to the divorce text we looked at. If one, per, if one person breaks the covenant, the covenant is broken. This person doesn't have to decide whether or not they want to stay in the marriage. The covenant has been broken. They are free to leave. The covenant's been broken. This is why I also recommend, as an extension of this teaching, that if there's been a breach of covenant and a desire to reconcile, renew the covenant. Don't just start living together again and playing house. Do something to actually renew the covenant before God and before man. So whether you call that renewing of vows or whatever it might be, renewing of the handshake or re-signing, renew the covenant. So now you're in covenant again. See, But if we don't understand this, someone runs off, they're just back in it, they're just back in the agreement. But they're... But this is not the fundamental nature of it. It's a covenant. Oh, I see what you're saying. So you, first, I, I thought you were going down the road of God. I thought you were saying that God allows two or a believer and an unbeliever to marry. But you're saying, no, no. oh, okay. Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, I see. So what do we do with an unbeliever's marriage? Is that a true covenant? Yeah. So, like, yeah. Are they, are they really married or are they not? Yes. Okay, so yes, they are. And the reason for this is... We understand as believers that God oversees the covenant. Whether you understand that or acknowledge that or not, he still oversees the covenant. Like God doesn't cease to exist when you're an atheist. He doesn't cease to exist when you're an agnostic. He doesn't cease to exist when you abandon him. He's still there. He's not, God, the reality of God's presence is not dependent upon the reality of my acknowledgement of it or not. God just is. So looking at it then from the perspective of people who do believe in God and believe God exists, marriage as covenant was forged in the Garden of Eden. Therefore, it is transcultural. It, it covers the whole of time. It's outside of a specific culture's notion. It's, it is, in fact, the only covenant that is transcultural, and sort of, for lack of a better term, trans-time. God's covenant with Abraham is specific to a particular people group. God's covenant with his people, the new covenant, is specific to his church. It doesn't apply to others. They're not in it but not aware of it. Marriage, uh, while it is, in a sense, a hollowed-out marriage, 
when someone doesn't recognize who actually is recognizing that union, God, uh, is still a marriage in the eyes of God. And interestingly, uh, um, this has continued on. So even today, in the total absence of God, there is still the seminal uh, seed form notion of marriage is something different in the, the presentation of two witnesses to a covenant. So yes, I believe that a um, two Muslims that are married, that's a marriage. It's, it's a true covenant. It was witnessed by God and man, even if they have a different notion of God. Two atheists, they're married. That's a covenant between God and man. Uh, even though they don't do not acknowledge God, God acknowledges the covenant. Now, obviously, you have all sorts of practical problems when you don't acknowledge the acknowledger of the covenant, and you run into conflicts and whatnot. Like who who calls the shots? Who binds you together? So it's a hollowed-out marriage. Uh, it's a weakened marriage. The illustration, just from like a counseling perspective, we often use is we say, you know, here's. Here's husband and wife in relationship. It's a horizontal relationship. Where should we move? How many kids should we have? Where should we spend our money? Do you want to go for a jog? What are we going to eat tonight? On and on and on. All the horizontal dimensions, right? What's the nature of our sexual relationship? Well, at some point you're going to disagree. No, I don't want to move there. I don't think you should have that job. You're spending too much money. That's not my view of sex. No, I'm not talking to you, whatever it might be. So then God stands between as the third party. And the, the, I like the, the, uh, the imagery here in that as the husband grows closer to God and the wife grows closer to God, this line between them is shortened. It's shortened as you draw closer to God. So I look to God, Susie looks to God, I look to God, Susie looks to God. And the problems disappear. But when I'm just looking to me, which I do, or she just looks to her, which she does a lot more than I do. Um, you know, then there's a distance between the two, right? I hope you appreciate we can say that. I can say that because we actually get along. Yeah, I'll probably get in trouble later, but it was. Mm. Yeah, the threefold cord that's not easily broken. <laughs> Out of the corner of my eye, I saw two hands. Nancy. So this point, then, as many are doing, I'm putting in my sunstone, which means the civil, mm. the rules got out, and they will never know that there is a covenant, and they will never accept the fact that it can't be broken tomorrow or today. Yeah, they won't. So how do you do that? How do you, like we talked tonight about us doing, remember we had that, you know, gospel, uh, disciples of Christ, sharing the book of Matthew, mm. and I was talking with Jason. It's so hard because mm -hmm. the movement is away. How do you turn the Okay, well, abortion, um, you know, I'll, I'll maybe address that at another point in time, but um, when, it, when it comes to turning the tide, um, without the prevailing presence of the gospel, it will not happen. 
it, it will not happen in any sort of a cataclysmic, universal, profound way. You know, the, the gospel message is more than how to get out of hell and get into heaven. The gospel message is the entirety of God's kingdom call, his, his claim to be king, his call for you to surrender yourself to him as your king and to live in his kingdom. You, you go through the gates at your conversion, but the gospel message extends beyond your conversion. It extends into the whole, the whole of the Christian life. It's, it's about being a kingdom citizen, a kingdom-minded citizen. And because we still drag around you know, the, the old man, um, we're always looking over the wall, looking out the gates, looking at the old way of life, sometimes wandering back to it. The whole of the Christian life is about life in the kingdom. Well, until God is king, you, can, you can't moralize your culture. You can, you can actually, in fact, you can legislate your culture into, a, into morals if you had the power to do so. But it's also hollow. It's works-oriented. I mean, there's, there's countries in our world that are Roman Catholic countries. There's countries in our world that are Muslim countries. There's countries in our world that are like Hindu countries. And they can legislate a form of morality, but it's hollow. You know, at least in our culture, we have the real deal. If you don't love God, it's obvious. In countries where you, you sort of have to follow the rules, it's kind of hard to tell who really loves God and who doesn't. At least in our culture, we know you, you don't love God because it's very clear from your choices and your lifestyle and who's your king. So I, I think that... For, I said this to a friend of mine many, many years ago, and he surprisingly found it helpful, so I'll share it again. I wasn't meaning for it to be as helpful as it was, but he said he found it quite helpful, and I'll say it again. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6 and in Romans 1, homosexuality, as one example of pornea, is forbidden. Okay? That's what the Bible says. Uh, what is the purest motivation then for us to speak out against it? The purest. What would you say is the purest motivation to speak out against it? That's part of it. But that's let's get let's go even a little higher. Okay. Good. Okay. There's there's where we need to ultimately go. It's ultimately about the holiness of God, right? Ultimately. So we keep this in mind that all sin is fundamentally and most importantly a, 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 an offense to the very essence of God. And that drives any anger and frustration we have with any sin. This is an offense to the holiness of God, including all the sin in our lives, from, top, from the big ones to the little ones. So then secondly, to go to Jill's comment, it must be driven by the good of the person who's committing the offense. 
that's the, that's the, the next tier down. And I, I wonder, and myself included, okay, often guilty of speaking out against things like that, that I consider an offense to my biology, kind of gross, disgusting, whatever it might be, weird, influential upon others. But I'm not always driven by an intense and abiding desire to see God's best and God's kingdom come into the lives of all broken people. And if I truly, truly love two people who are committing a homosexual act, then apart from the Holy Spirit, they may not be convinced. But I want to do everything within my power to present them with God's best. And it's not that. It's not that. So if that, that then is the case, then let's just take this in the, the, to the next step. What methods work and what methods don't? Picketing and petitions probably don't communicate that desire. Shouting down, hollering out against, probably don't communicate that desire. You may have the desire, but the, the, the way you express that desire should in some way match the desire. So if the desire is for the love and grace of the other, then one would want to pick a method, a strategy that is ripe with love and grace. So you got to think about this. I mean, I've, I know what it's like to have a holy passion for something, to, to desire righteousness and godliness, but to communicate it in a mean way. Right? And we can do that, especially with things that frustrate us a lot. We don't feel like we're getting anywhere. I, I think the church needs to do a better job of this when, when it comes to speaking out against all sin or all things that concern us. If, if you, for instance, were disappointed with the election results last night, um, and some of you may have been and some of you may not have been, and it's, it's, it's a free country. You, you, you may have been quite appreciative or you may not have. But let's assume for a moment that there's a segment that maybe wasn't all that impressed. You are still called to love our prime minister you are called to treat him with respect and dignity. Uh, you are called to surrender yourself to the authorities that be. And yeah, I mean, in off-the-record conversations, you may express, I don't really like that, I don't like this guy or whatever else. But you need to now move beyond that. What is, is for the next four years or whatever it might be, right? And you need to present yourself with grace and a measure of love. Um, what was the first question that was asked? I don't even know where we went. Where do we go here? I got off. What was your question, Nancy? Oh, how do we make a change? Okay, I think it was like, how do we make a change? Well, that's our side. So that's our side. I remember the question now. But the proclamation of the whole gospel then is necessary. Not just here's your fire insurance. Here's how to get out of the lake of fire. But the whole comprehensive call of the gospel is to live life within the kingdom of a benevolent, loving king who, when seen in all of his purity and glory, is quite attractive and who, because he is good, is assuredly always interested in what's best for you and who is holy and who expects his people to be holy. So it's, it's a comprehensive kind of thing. Uh, it, it cannot be reduced to political lobbying. Uh, it cannot be reduced to picketing. Um, the same goes with abortion. You know, I'm not opposed to picketing, 
I'm not opposed to political activism, but it should be a footnote to the broader gospel gospel ministry that the church engages in. Just a footnote to it, not the essence of the gospel. It's a footnote to it. It's a minor expression of it to write a letter or pick it. But let's get the the the, the big the big picture right, the the gospel ministry, and then. Maybe there's appropriate times to express it in certain political or more vocal ways. Okay. Um, I the way you're looking at me, I kind of think we're out of time. Um, <laughs> let me see here. Well, it's only one minute over. So, Cynthia, I think you had a question. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, I think there's a difference between someone who's who you know is sinning outside of your sight and someone who's sinning right in front of you. And most homosexuals aren't going to be committing homosexual acts right in front of you. So, if a person is uh, like sinning out of sight and they're not a believer, um, then you, uh, you you you. You just have those conversations you have with your child. Like, I just want you to be aware that such and such is participating in this kind of lifestyle. We don't agree with it. Presumably the person's not saved? No. Okay. Then, just like anyone else who's sinning, you know, you just like if you, um, you know, took them to your Uncle Larry's house and your Uncle Larry's a drunk or uh, smokes weed when you're not around or whatever it might be. Uh, you know, just let your, especially if they're young children, if they're older, they'll figure it out themselves, but tip them off. Uncle Larry's not a believer. He's not going to act like one. He's probably going to swear a few times. We don't agree with it, but this is an opportunity for us to speak into his life. It's a totally different situation if it's a professing Christian who's living in unconfessed sin, right? But yeah, I, I, I don't think, um, I think our kids need to see grace in action. I mean, you don't take your kid around anybody who's destructive, of course, um, you know, you're probably not going to leave your kids with Uncle Larry the alcoholic any more than, you know, Aunt Bonnie, who just happens to be a run-of-the-mill secularist. But, um, you know, in terms of them c committing some of the more exotic sins, I would just have a conversation with my kids about that. We, we are not the Holy Spirit. We can't convict. We can't convert. But people have certain notions of us. And I'll share, you, I'll share with you a quick story, but I'm going to turn my mic off because I don't want this to be recorded.